Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. A few years ago, my oldest daughter graduated from high school, and we spent the summer getting her ready to go to college. And it was a unique opportunity for us. It was a, just an interesting season of reflection and transition, and we just stood there all the time that summer going, where's the time go? Just yesterday, you were this tall, running around with a stuffed animal in your teeth. And, and we just, what we found ourselves doing was we found ourselves telling stories, lots and lots of stories. We looked back a whole lot. Remember when you were in kindergarten and your backpack was bigger than you? And do you remember when you moved here to Oregon and it's such a big transition? Do you remember that? Do you remember middle school, even though we wanted to forget? Because middle school is a difficult transition. Middle school is when I found myself creating a quote list on my phone of everything that my daughter had shared with us. Uh, really great things like one time when I said, I hope you have a great day. And she said, not gonna happen because you make me so angry. <laughs> I have a section here that is all about authority because she might've had just a small problem with authority. I did ask her permission to share this. She was always telling us as parents when we asked her to do something, well, I didn't ask to be born. Or she would say things like, well, apparently this isn't really a free country. Um, she said, what's the point of obeying? That's just giving you what you want. <laughs> I don't even like to vacuum. She, th she thought we did. And then eventually she gets to this point. She kind of comes to this conclusion. She comes to me one day and she's sad. She just has this look of defeat on her face. And she says, okay, dad, I'll obey. I won't argue and I'll listen to what you say, but my life is going to be miserable. <laughs> you, you don't have all good stories to tell in these moments of transition, but I'll be honest, most of the stories that we told about her were good stories. She's amazing, she's fantastic, she's a leader. She has a heart for justice. When she was just a little girl, she heard that people in Africa don't have clean water to drink, so she got together a bunch of buddies and literally raised as like a six or seven year old, I don't remember how old she was, she raised $1,500 to build a well in Africa. And we kept looking back and telling these stories and it strikes me that in this significant moment of transition, we're telling stories of the past to move confidently into our future. Telling stories of the past to move confidently into our future. We are saying things like, yeah, we got through all of these seasons and some was hard and some was good and some was sad and some was hilarious, but we made it through all of these things. And all along the way, God was with us. God guided us. God directed us. We can see his fingerprints prints clearly on our lives. We can connect the dots. And these moments of reflection became really important to us. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning, this idea that looking backward helps us live forward. Looking backward helps us live forward. And that might seem counterintuitive because a lot of people would say, don't ever look back. This is why the rear view mirror is so small and your windshield is so big. And if you look back, you'll never be able to grab what's going on in your future. Or don't look back, something might be gaining on you. Our tendency, though, I get it. Our tendency is to look back at our failings. Our tendency is to look back and see those monumental embarrassments. 
Those things that we did wrong that are forever burned in our brain. And I'm not saying that that's where we need to land. I'm not saying that we need to be trapped by our past. We can learn from it. We don't need to live there. But when we look back with perspective, it allows us to move forward with hope. You see, when we don't know what the future holds, for instance, now, we should come together and tell stories of the faithfulness of God. You see, scripture is full of these moments. There's a whole genre of Psalms called the Psalms of Remembrance. When we come together and take communion, we're doing it to remember what Jesus did for us. And we're declaring who we are in him. We're declaring him as savior. We're declaring all of these things so that we can move forward. Looking backward helps us live forward. And that's what we're gonna see. We're finishing up our series this morning in the book of Esther called Connecting the Dots. And God is never specifically mentioned. And yet despite appearances, God is always at work. God's hand is always moving. So if you have your Bibles, uh, we're gonna be in Esther 9 and 10. So wherever you are, we're gonna use the New Living Translation and uh, bring this story to its conclusion. It's been an amazing story. We have all of these dots here in this slide that we've connected all the way along. But what we really want to focus on today is the fact that there was this guy named Haman, and he is the antagonist of this story. And Haman, he convinced the king to put a decree in place that would kill all of the Jews. Now, Esther and Mordecai, who were Jews, thought this was a bad idea. So they then went to the king and tried to convince him otherwise that this needed to happen. So Esther is the queen and Mordecai is her cousin and they work out this system and finally expose Haman and he gets the point, uh, if you know what I'm talking about, he finally gets the point of what's going on in the story. And so then this other decree goes out that says that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. And that's kind of where we are in the story. Haman is out of it. and we're moving forward. Now, uh, all along, we have invited you to participate in this story as people have been doing for a long, long time. And we wanna just finish strong this morning, even though there's not a lot of people in the room. So we cheer Mordecai, we cheer Esther. If you hear King Xerxes' name, he's just to me, he's like, meh. So feel free to just be like, eh. King Xerxes. Uh, Jennifer introduced last weekend some ouch moments. There'll be some other ouch moments. Feel free to throw those in. Uh, Not everywhere, but where appropriate, those ouch moments. And then when we get to Haman, yeah, so uh, there's some noisemakers in the room for the first time that I passed out, but usually we boo or hiss or make some noise with the noisemakers as we go. So we're going to read the story. It's a little bit long, but here's where we are. So on March 7th, The two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the highest highest officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. 
So the Jews went ahead on the appointed day and struck down their enemies with the sword. They killed and annihilated their enemies and did as they pleased with those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa itself, the Jews killed 500 men. They also killed, there's a whole list of Haman's sons here that we can't pronounce. Uh, so yeah, Bob and Jim, no, I'm kidding. Um, so the 10 sons of Haman, son of Haman Datha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not take any plunder. That very day, when the king was informed of the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa, he called for Queen Esther. He said, the Jews have killed 500 men in the fortress of Susa alone, as well as Haman's 10 sons. If they have done that here, what has happened in the rest of the provinces? But now, what more do you want? It will be granted to you. Tell me, and I will do it. Esther responded, if it please the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to do again tomorrow, as they have done today, and let the bodies of Haman's 10 sons be impaled on a pole. Ouch, there you go. So the king agreed and the decree was announced in Susa and they impaled the bodies of Haman's 10 sons. Then the Jews at Susa gathered together on March 8th and killed 300 more men and again they took no plunder. Meanwhile, the other Jews throughout the king's provinces had gathered together to defend their lives. They gained relief from all their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not take any plunder. This was done throughout the provinces on March 7th and on March 8th they rested, celebrating their victory with a day of feasting and gladness. The Jews at Susa killed their enemies on March 7th and again on March 8th, then rested on March 9th, making that their day of feasting and gladness. So to this day, rural Jews living in remote villages celebrate an annual festival and holiday on the appointed day in late winter when they rejoice and send gifts of food to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, eh. calling on them to celebrate an annual festival on these two days. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness and by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies, when their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. So the Jews accepted Mordecai's proposal and adopted this annual custom. Haman, son of Haman Datha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them on the date determined by casting lots. The lots were called Purim. But when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire and Haman and his sons were impaled on a sharpened pole. That is why this celebration is called Purim because it is the ancient word for casting lots. So because of Mordecai's letter and because of what they had experienced, the Jews throughout the realm agreed to inaugurate this tradition and to pass it on to their descendants and to all who became Jews. They declared they would never fail to celebrate these two prescribed days at the appointed time each year. These days would be remembered and kept from generation to generation and celebrated by every family throughout the provinces and cities of the empire. This festival of Purim would never cease to be celebrated among the Jews, nor would the memory of what happened ever die out among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote another letter putting the queen's full authority behind Mordecai's letter to establish the festival of Purim. Letters wishing peace and security were sent to the Jews throughout the 127 provinces of the empire of Xerxes. 
These letters established the festival of Purim, an annual celebration of these days at the appointed time, decreed by both Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther. The people decided to observe this festival just as they had decided for themselves and their descendants to establish the times of fasting and mourning. So the command of Esther confirmed the practices of Purim and it was all written down in the records. King Xerxes eh, imposed a tribute throughout his empire, even to the distant coastlands. His great achievements and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of the king himself. He was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. And that's the end of the story. The Jews experienced an unexpected victory and so they established a festival of celebration. They established this remembrance, this reminder of God's deliverance, this Purim festival which means a roll of the dice. And we learned earlier in this series that man rolls the dice, but God determines where they fall. And that was an important part early on in the story. But we need to understand that Purim is a party. There is a spirit of liveliness and fun at Purim that's unparalleled on the rest of the Jewish calendar. And you get, you get together, it's one night and then the next day, and you read through the story of Esther twice and you cheer and you boo and you dress up in costumes and you send gifts to the poor and you send food to other people. And then you have this huge feast and you eat all of these amazing things. And I actually got to experience this this past week and you eat Haman's ears or, or Haman's hat there are these triangle pastries that are folded over then you can't see what's inside. It's hidden. It could be sweet. It could be savory. But part of that is to just show the hiddenness of God in the story and the hiddenness of Esther in the story. And it's an amazing thing, but it's not military and it's not revenge and it's not angry. It's supposed to be celebratory. It's supposed to be restful. It's a festival established to look backward so that they can live forward. You see, ours is a faith based on history, a faith based on experiences. And when we have these experiences, these big experiences, these big dots, we want to remember them. We want to celebrate them. We want to write them down. Some of them we mourn, some of them we rejoice. And so when God seems absent or when God seems abundantly obvious, we celebrate these moments. And that's why this story is important to us. It's not just important in the historical context that it was set in. It's important to us today. It's important to us in the future. It's important to look back so that we can live forward. And as we look back in the story, we see two key things about God. Looking backward, we see that God always remembers his promises. God always remembers his promises. Purim has its roots in the promises of God. And in Genesis chapter 17, we find this big promise. We find God making a covenant with man where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is repeated again and again in scripture. But Haman in this story, ooh, Haman, if he had his way, there wouldn't be any people for God to be a God over. 
And so at the beginning of chapter nine, maybe as we read this, it seemed a little bit rough to you. It seemed a little bit violent to you. It seemed like all of a sudden the oppressed had become the oppressors in the story. But we need to read this part of the story in the narrative of all of scripture. We need to understand that there's more going on here than we can even see in this story. You see, according to many scholars, the only people that would dare attack the Jews, even in this story, were the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, we first read them about them in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 even, it says that when Israel was coming up out of Egypt, the Amalekites were this group of people that came along behind them and killed the weak and started picking people off kind of at the end of the line. And it says they had no fear of God. And God says, I will remember this and I want you to remember this. As a matter of fact, before a Jew would read the story of Esther on Purim, they would read Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. They would read that passage about the Amalekites. Fast forward a little bit to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul is king and God says, it's time for you to destroy the Amalekites. I'm remembering my promise. You are still my people. They are still attacking you. And I need you to destroy the Amalekites. Saul doesn't do it. As a matter of fact, Saul keeps their king Agag alive and he keeps the plunder. And this is Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, the, the son of Kish. And then we fast forward to Esther and we find Mordecai who was also from the tribe of Benjamin in the direct line of Kish. You see, it's telling us a story. It's relating it back to the Amalekites. We find Mordecai who finally brings about the defeat of the Amalekites. God did not forget. Haman was an Agagite, which means he was from the line of King Agag, who King Saul had kept alive. All of this kind of goes together. This is all God remembering his promises. It's a tough passage, but it reminds us again that justice is the Lord's. It reminds us again that the Jews in no way could have planned the outcome of this story. This is what God did. And even as you look at it, Haman did not die at the hands of Mordecai. God remembers his promises. We are his people. He remembered his promise. He kept his people's line going forward so that he could continue the narrative, so that he could continue the story because he knew he was going to bring a greater, more complete peace to the world. Psalm 105 is one of those beautiful Psalms of remembrance. And it says this, he always stands by his covenant. He always stands by the commitments that he has made. You see, for them, in exile, under the authority of a foreign king with a death sentence hanging over their head, they would have been tempted to say, God, where are you? God, don't you remember these things? Have you forgotten us? And there are probably seasons in our own lives where we said the same thing. And maybe not with a death sentence hanging over our head, but the same questions when we have a family situation that seems impossible or we have a relationship that won't work out or we have a job situation that doesn't seem to be working or maybe even in this current cultural context of this global scare and we're like, God, what's going on? Have you forgotten us? We tend to judge God on these moments. We see the pieces even though we don't see the grand mosaic all the time. But just because it's hard doesn't mean that God's hand isn't in it. God does not forget us. My youngest daughter reminded me of a story of remembrance that my family tells uh, frequently. When I was a kid, my brother and I treated our beds um, like a bunch of different things, like trampolines or diving boards or the end zone. And we used to catch 
uh, footballs all the time and like land on the bed. The bed was just that place that was, you just wrestled and everything happened on the beds. We also had electric blankets. Now, the rough use of the bed and the electric blanket probably weren't the perfect combination. So one night when I was little, I went to sleep, kicked on the electric blanket. My mom tucked us in, said goodnight, went away. Just before my mom was going to bed, she had this sense that Holy Spirit was saying, you need to check on the boys one more time. And so she comes in late at night and she notices that my bed is literally on fire. Uh, something had happened with the wires and literally flames leaping up, burning a hole in my sheets and everything. And she's smacking this out. I slept through the whole thing. Didn't remember a thing. She's smacking this out, putting this fire out. We kept the blanket for a long time that had this huge burn hole in it. God remembers God moves, God stirs, God protects his people. And even in the hard things, we still see God's hand at work. I was reading a, a sermon from Charles Spurgeon this past week, and he had this quote in it. He said, our griefs cannot mar the melody of our praise, for we reckon them to be the deep bass notes of our song. It's the deep bass notes of this song. For Mordecai, sometimes he was in ashes, sometimes he was being led through the city by his enemy, connecting the dots. Isaiah chapter 49, God's people were like, you've forgotten us. God says, never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. It's this picture of that God has our name tattooed on his hands, which is this idea that his hands will never move without seeing our names. God always remembers his promises. And so looking backward, we see this. But his remembering isn't just mental recall, it's activity. God always remembers his promises and he's always at work for his people. God is always at work for his people in big and small ways. Sometimes God parts the Red Sea. Sometimes God rigs a beauty contest. Sometimes God makes the sun stand still. Sometimes God gives the king insomnia and makes him read a history book. Sometimes God feeds an entire nation with manna and sometimes God has the right people in the right place at the right time to accomplish his purpose and to put a decree in place that would save his nation. This decree that sets in, the mo sets in motion the redemption of his people. And it's, it's such an interesting story. This, this is big things along the way. God is always at work for his people. And it's interesting, redemption stories are all throughout scripture. And this is an interesting redemption story, but we have to understand that there's a difference between Old Testament redemptive stories and New Testament redemptive stories. In the Old Testament, God's judgment of people was implemented in many different ways. And oftentimes after much grace, his judgment was carried out in fierce and forceful ways. But the redemption story that we see in the New Testament, it flips the script. The tables are turned. The penalty for sin and rebellion is placed upon Christ. You see, God's judgment against us was satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. This is God at work for us. This is one of those moments that we step back. This is the big dot in our story. If we're connecting dots all along the way, this, this is the big dot. 
This is where we see, God, you are at work. God, you continually to work on our behalf. A couple weekends ago, I was sitting over here in one of the services and I felt like Holy Spirit was challenging my view of who God was. Just this idea that God is always working. And I, sometimes when I pray, I have this picture of God. Uh, I don't know if you do this, but I just have this mental image and I just picture him on a throne and he's, he's just humongous. You know, he's God, he's large and in charge and he's very bright. Um, I don't know, that's just, that's just how my picture is. But, but static and stationary and I come to him. And God was just really kind of pushing on me a little bit that, yeah, that's, that's fine, that's a fine picture. But I want you to understand that God is always moving. God is not just static and stationary and always in the throne room. We have a God who is living and moving and active and everywhere and who comes and who invades our space and who moves into our problems and our issues and he's always at work for us. And it got me starting to pray about, okay, God, where are you moving? Where are you? Where's your hand? Where's all of this? God is active. Psalm 136 is another one of those beautiful Psalms of remembrance. And it's full of action words. It's the psalm that has a phrase and then afterwards it says his love endures forever through the whole psalm. But it's all action. It says he has a strong hand and a powerful arm and he remembers and he performs miracles and he creates and he moves and he parts and he rules and he leads and he gives and he saves. His love endures forever. God is always at work for his people. And when we look backward, we see these truths. When we look backward, it becomes identity shaping for us because that's what Purim is about. Purim is about identity and not activity. Purim is a reestablishing of who we are, who we belong to. It's this awakening. They were exiles. They were strangers in a hostile land. They didn't have to remain Jews. They could have hidden who they were. There was really no evidence that being a Jew was a good thing at this time. But they didn't. They mourned, they called out, they questioned, they trusted, and they escaped death. And so this celebration that they were establishing was this, this commitment to their identity as God's people. And that's the value of looking backward. That's the value of seeing everything that God has done so that we can continue to move forward because we can get lost, we can get off track, we can go sideways, we can settle for second rate counterfeit versions of ourselves. But when we look back and see who God is and what God has done, and we see the big dots in the story and we see that he's always faithful, that he always remembers his promises, that he's always working on our behalf, we can move forward in hope. And that's why Purim is for us today. That's why it's not just, oh, they celebrated it back then or oh, a certain cultural group celebrates it. It's for us, it's a beautiful tradition. And this past week, I had the opportunity to experience it. One of the joys of my ministry world here at Salem Alliance is I get to work with a group of amazing young adults on Thursday evenings and just be blessed by them. Some of them are in the room. I just love it. And so this past week, we celebrated Purim together. Here's just a quick video of what that looked like for us.
was awesome. It was really good. It was so good. I mean, for everybody but Haman, <laughs> such a good, such a good time. A reminder that honestly, opposition has always been there. It always will be. There will always be things going sideways, but God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And we wanna look back and we want to remember. It's interesting to me, the story of Esther isn't about one decision. It's not just about, uh, if I make the one right decision in the one big moment, then everything will be different. Esther and Purim remind us that, that there's a bunch of moments, that there's a bunch of dots in our lives, that faith is about a way of life, not just one big decision. It's being able to connect the dots. It's being able to see God's hand. It's a constant reminder of who God is, that he remembers his promises, that he's always at work on our behalf, that our identity is found in him then, that we can always rest in these things, that we are on his team, the winning team, that his family's forever, that he's gonna keep his church safe. And one day he's coming back and he'll make everything right. And until then, there's just a couple handles that I just wanna give you in closing. First one is this, throw a party and celebrate. Now, this does not seem like the appropriate time to throw a party. Maybe in an appropriate social distancing way, I want you to throw a party. I want you to get together a small group of people. You don't have to have costumes. If you want the right food, it was amazing. But throw a party because that's a way that you can remember and celebrate. That's a way that you can bring people into your story. So don't just throw a party to have a party, but throw a party to tell the story. Throw a party to remember God's faithfulness in the past. Throw a party with people that maybe you don't usually get together with and you can share your story of God's faithfulness. And secondly, I would just say this, create a connect the dots journal. I think it's important that we put these things in writing. All along, our handles every week in this entire series have been continue to connect the dots in our lives. But I think we need to begin to write these things down. I was reading a little bit of Mark Twain this past week, and he says, when I was younger, I could remember anything, whether it happened or not. But my faculties are decaying now, and soon I shall be so that I cannot remember any but the things that never happened. Sometimes we're forgetful people and we need to have these things in writing. We need to put these things into a place that we can look back and we can remember. We can remember the faithfulness of God. Looking backward helps us live forward. Psalm 78, another Psalm of remembrance. It says this, we will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. So each generation should set its hope anew on God. We look back to live forward well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for this story. I thank you for these reminders. I thank you that all along in all these big and small ways we've seen your hand at work, even though you're not mentioned specifically. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see. God, in this moment of doubt, in this moment of questioning, in this moment, if we even wonder if you've forgotten us or not, continue to make yourself known to us. Continue to give us voice to your praise. Give us voice to share stories of your faithfulness. Give us voice to celebrate you 
and what you've done for us. Thank you that we can lean on these stories in your word and we can lean on stories in our own lives. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.